Jumia is the largest e-commerce company operating in Africa and is sometimes called Africa's Amazon. It also, very recently, in mid-April of 2019, launched an IPO, an initial public offering, on the New York Stock Exchange, meaning they started selling common stock to anyone who wanted to buy it. A big step for any company, and a rarity for the NYSE, at least, for a company that operates primarily in 14 African countries. This operating range would typically limit their exposure to larger, more moneyed international markets, but that launch pad has been enough to gain them unicorn status, a billion dollars or more in IPO valuation, which is still a quite rare thing in any region. Interestingly, although Jumia is often considered to be an African company, and even promotes itself at times as an African company, it was actually incorporated in Germany by two French founders. Their IPO documents tallied their accounting numbers in US dollars and euros, not in any one of the many African currencies that they accept. And although the company has done many smart, regionally focused things, like hiring most of the company's employees somewhere in Africa, primarily Nigeria, and accepting mobile money payments, which is a big deal in a region where most people do not have debit or credit cards, there's still the question of whether this kerfuffle over origin and implied cultural branding will prove to be more than just an early days talking point, after which they'll continue to scale and grow and do business as usual. Then again, business as usual for Jumia isn't actually profitable, despite what their solid performance pre- and post-IPO might imply. Jumia's sales increased by 40% in 2018, reaching about $147.3 million in sales. But the company has losses totaling around $1 billion, which have been accumulating since their founding in 2012. On top of that, Jumia is attempting to, more or less, build out an entire industry rather than just a business. The world of online commerce absolutely exists throughout Africa and has for some time, but it's still relatively small there compared to other markets. And the reasons for this are many and disparate, but a good number of them tie back to some of the fundamental issues found in the infrastructure throughout most African countries. Even in Nigeria, which is where Jumia is based on the continent, and which has by far the wealthiest economy and highest population in Africa, the economy is still a low-trust economy, meaning it is not automatically assumed that if you pay for something, you will get what you think you are buying. Consumers don't even always trust sellers in real life, in person, and trust levels tend to be even more abysmal online. This lack of trust goes both ways, too, with consumers and purveyors both wondering if they're going to be ripped off which leads to a scenario in which you might have this marvelous online store offering all kinds of products and services that were not available even just a few years ago, but which people don't fully know what to do with. Because the idea of just giving money to an online entity and expecting to get something of quality in return is not reflexive. That's not the obvious outcome for commerce, as it generally takes place in a lot of these areas. There are also logistical issues found up top at the national level, 
with, at times, unevenly applied regulations and standards, and all the way down at the neighborhood level as well, with inaccurate or missing addresses, which hinders deliveries, alongside a lack of officially sanctioned online currency exchange platforms, which leaves many people utilizing things like mobile phone minutes rather than their local currency when they make purchases, especially online, because those minutes tend to hold their value and can be purchased and exchanged without banks or PayPal. What I want to talk about today is something that's happening in Africa throughout almost the entirety of the continent that could ameliorate some of these issues and could help more Jumias, locally born and based or otherwise, flourish in the region, while also potentially allowing other creators throughout the continent the ability to get their work in front of larger national, continental, and intercontinental audiences. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the North Africa Post, and it's entitled, Africa's Continental Free Trade Area Takes Effect. The African Continental Free Trade Area, or AFCFTA, is a proposed trade organization that would be made up of countries on the African continent and would involve dropping or simplifying certain barriers to trade that currently exist between these nations. This trade organization was proposed by the African Union, which is a continental union much like the European Union, a collection of nations on a particular continent that have formed a metanational body to work out issues and figure out ways to work together. And the African Union is made up of 55 different countries. And I'm actually going to list those countries by name real quick here. As I've found when discussing issues in Africa, a lot of people want to know more, want to understand what's happening in that part of the world. But for a variety of reasons, we're just not provided with a lot of starting points in our understanding, even if we really want to understand more. So I highly recommend Googling or Wikipedia-ing any countries that you do not recognize from this list as you listen to these country names. That is what I tend to do when I encounter places that I don't know about. It's a really great kickoff to better understanding. So all that said, the African Union consists of Algeria, Angola, Benin, Botswana, Burkina Faso, Burundi, Cape Verde, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, Comoros, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Djibouti, Egypt, Equatorial Guinea, Eritrea, Eswatini, which was until recently known as Swaziland, Ethiopia, Gabon, Gambia, Ghana, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Ivory Coast, Kenya, Lesotho, Liberia, Libya, Madagascar, Malawi, Mali, Mauritania, Mauritius, Morocco, Mozambique, Namibia, Niger, Nigeria, Republic of the Congo, Rwanda, Sarawi, Arab Democratic Republic, Sao Tome and Principe, Senegal, Seychelles, Sierra Leone, Somalia, South Africa, South Sudan, Sudan, Tanzania, Togo, Tunisia, Uganda, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. Like the EU, the AU has elections and official positions, it has a purpose statement and a collection of objectives, and a lot of its activities revolve around trying to solve problems on the continent, ranging from the ongoing AIDS pandemic to rampant corruption of various flavors and civil wars and abuses from external parties, often larger countries trying to, or successfully managing to, use local governments or non-government entities as pawns in larger international conflicts or economic strategies. 
The AFCFTA is one of the AU's more recent efforts meant to help African countries compete economically, internationally, but even more importantly, in some ways, it's meant to help these countries more capably, safely, and lucratively trade with each other. Some of the issues in continental trade involve dilapidated infrastructure or outside meddling by countries like China or the U.S., both of which pull strings locally in an attempt to lock down vital minerals that they need for their manufacturing industries, or in some cases to deny such resources to their economic opposition. A lot of these issues are homegrown, though, and revolve around more mundane bureaucratic problems, like tariffs and import-export fees, not to mention the time it takes for imports and exports to be cleared at the borders between African countries. It's estimated that, on average, a shipment from one country to another within Africa costs 50% more than a similar shipment in East Asia, due in large part to these fees and the costs from the additional time products and resources spent in transit rather than on shelves or manufacturing hubs. The main immediate benefit of the AFCFTA would be a substantial drop in tariffs, with 90% of them disappearing from each country's regulations as part of the agreement. That means that each country would get to choose 10% of their products that they can protect, at least in the short term, with government-mandated fees, which allows them to guard a few burgeoning local industries from external competition. But the rest of that trade has to be made without those high fees. And that means a more liberalized trade economy, in the economic sense of the word liberalized, not the political sense of the word. So liberalized meaning freer trade in this case, along with other changes like the improvement of trade routes, the investment in trade-related infrastructure, and things of that nature. Smoothing out all the little jagged bits from the roads and metaphorical roads that will allow this trade to take place more consistently and easily and inexpensively. Simply opening the doors for competition, though not a universal salve, could do wonders for certain aspects of some industries and markets, while also exposing citizens of heretofore economically isolated countries to a variety of new products, services, and cultural artifacts. New music, new film, new magazines and books, new cereals, new fruits. More benefits are expected to emerge down the line, though, and some could be quite substantial above and beyond the quality of life and price-related benefits of increased and freer regional trade. The United Nations Economic Commission for Africa estimates that this agreement, once implemented, could increase trade between African countries by 52% by 2022, compared to trade levels in 2010. And this is a big deal, as intra-African trade levels are ridiculously low compared to trade in other continents. In the European Union, for instance, Cyprus is at the low end, with about 38% of their total trade taking place within the EU in 2017, compared to Slovakia at the high end, with a full 86% of their trade taking place within the EU that same year. The rest of the European Union falls somewhere between those two extremes, with Belgium coming in with over 70% and Germany with just under 60% intra-EU trade. African nations, on the other hand, on average, only trade intra-AU with other African nations about 10.2% of the time. Now again, that's the average, but it's somewhat startling compared to the 38 to 86% that we see in the EU. This is generally considered to be a long-term consequence of many different variables, but colonization in particular led to economic and political relationships that left many African economies reliant on external trade partners to function. 
And though there's nothing inherently wrong with trading overseas, it's actually a good thing that we're able to do this in a lot of regards. Many of these countries' trade relationships are also weighed heavily in the trading partner's favor rather than in favor of the African nations involved, in part because of that history and in part because many of these African nations do not have local alternatives they can easily trade with. This trade union, then, in addition to providing that additional structure and reducing some of the existing hurdles standing between these neighboring nations when it comes to trade, could also provide them with leverage when it comes to international trade. If the U.S. or China comes in with an obviously bad offer, Zimbabwe will be more likely to say no if they have another trading partner available, someone nearby and with whom they are actually kind of incentivized to trade with because there are fewer barriers and because it can help them reinforce local continental relationships, politically and economically. So the African continental free trade area has the potential to both balance international trading books, at least a bit, and to pave the roads, literally in some cases, but also figuratively, between the countries in this area, making it a lot easier for them to trade with each other, and in turn, hopefully, allowing them to benefit from the secondary consequences that emerge from such systems, like the tighter-knit relations between historically querulous regions, and increased local and international investment due to the perceived stability of a region with sturdier economic foundations and reinforced infrastructural fundamentals. Some important caveats to this plan and this story. As of the day I'm recording this, late April 2019, this trade union still hasn't been implemented, though it's meant to be soon. In early April 2019, Gambia became the 22nd country to officially ratify this agreement, which is the number required for it to take effect. This ratification happened about one year after the leaders of 44 African countries signed the initial free trade agreement paperwork, followed by eight more shortly thereafter. These other signatories, the ones that haven't yet ratified the agreement, have all signaled their intent to do so, but are waiting on further negotiations before they do. Those negotiations are meant to conclude in January of 2020, at which point, presumably, the whole of the deal will be worked out and the whole of the 52 countries who are invested in this deal will have ratified it or will be prepared to do so before it comes into effect. Notably, there are three countries in the African Union, Nigeria, Benin, and Eritrea, that have declined to sign this agreement. It's unclear at this point why this is the case. But Nigeria, the continent's largest economy and largest population, is thought to be negotiating with labor unions to see if they can eventually make it work. Some other countries, like South Africa, have also indicated that while they have not ratified the trade agreement quite yet, they are in favor of it. They just want to make sure that they dot all their I's and cross all their T's. There's a lot of legal maneuvering that goes into making something like this a reality, especially when you consider the different governmental setups of all the countries involved. It's a lot, and it's remarkable that it's gotten this far this quickly, to be honest. If everything goes through, as it seems like it might by early 2020, the world will have a new, massive free trade area, and potentially, within the next decade, a newly powerful, at least relative to now, block of countries that are more capable of broadcasting their culture and norms, not to mention selling their services and wares around the world. Reinforcing local economics in this way, historically, has allowed those who are part of such groups to redouble their efforts externally, globally, as well. It's not all sunshine and roses, of course. There are a lot of unknowns here, and there's a chance that this could prove to be a fruitless exercise, derailed by corruption, by mismanagement, by honest missteps, or active maliciousness. 
There are a lot of historically potent antagonisms in every corner of the world, but there are parts of Africa that give all the others a run for their money, in part because of just how much history there is, more than any other continent since, you know, humanity began in Africa. And with that sprawling history comes complexity and issues, and a lot of variables that could make or break this new effort. It's also possible that outside entities like other governments, but also extra-governmental terrorist organizations and other groups of that sort, could see this attempt at continental unity as being bad for their ambitions and may, as a consequence, try to jab a stick in the spokes of this agreement before it can even get off the ground. There aren't any specific rumblings in this direction right now, as far as I'm aware, so I'm not implying that there are spy games happening as we wait for these final signatories to commit to the trade union, but it would be surprising if someone somewhere running some government didn't think that this effort on Africa's part to become more self-sufficient and economically powerful stood in the way of their own off-continental ambitions. Such things needn't be zero-sum, but they often have been, historically especially when it comes to Africa. So I'm guessing we will see some off-continent players doing their best, perhaps subtly, perhaps not, to prevent this potential big player from entering the international fray as a fully vested economic equal. Which brings me to the wider context of this story. I read that list of African Union country names earlier because I find whenever I read about politics or economics or history, when it comes to the African continent, that I'm severely ignorant about so much of what happens there. It's nuts that there should be countries in the world, entire countries, that I know so little about, or in some cases, that I don't even recognize their name when I hear them. It's not the consequence of an active effort by the U.S. or European educational system to keep us ignorant of such things, I suspect, nor is it a conscious dismissal or insult by much of the global news media, who are doing their best to report on a million things all at once, all the time, from everywhere. It is a consistent enough thing, though, that news, real news of the kind we see coming from every other continent in the world, with the exception, generally at least, of Antarctica, we receive all this information all the time from everywhere, except this one continent. And when we do hear about what's happening in African nations, it's typically tragedy. It's a typhoon, it's a holocaust, or a civil war. It's poverty and disease and general horribleness. It's the type of information that evokes pity, not curiosity or respect. It's the kind of news that makes us wonder how this place, this one part of the world, got shafted so badly. And although there are horrible things that happen in this part of the world, just as there are in any part of the world, that slant towards certain types of information is unique. And there are a lot of historical reasons for our intellectual apathy when it comes to this region and the people who live there, I think. It's an uncomfortable thing to think or to talk about. The history of abuse, of dehumanization, of enslavement, of massacre. It's difficult to talk about or think about or report on with anything approaching nuance because the wounds are still very fresh and the consequences of everything that's happened in the area instigated by forces from around the world with repercussions that have reached around the world as well. Those consequences are still felt in a very practical and noticeable way today, throughout global society, by individuals, and baked into different pieces of our international relationships and laws and structures. There's also a cultural gap, in addition to the historical one, that can make reporting upon or even discussing this part of the world quite difficult for those who do not come from it. Before European conquest and colonization, it's thought that there were in the neighborhood of 10,000 different states and other political regions in Africa. 
many of which included multiple tribes and cultures who themselves had their own practices, traditions, rituals, and beliefs. Africa is literally where history began, with some of the oldest known civilizations like ancient Egypt, Carthage, and Nubia, among many others, surrounded by smaller but still greatly influential cultures like the Kingdom of Ife and the Berbers, which came along later. And these civilizations served as intellectual and cultural hubs for the world in various ways at different points in history. So in addition to the uncomfortable recent history realities that we must face if we're to discuss what's going on in Africa with anything approaching nuance and context, we also have to consider the incredible intricacies and cultural richness of this region. Again, this is something that can be said of any place to some degree, but Africa as a continent is the Ur example, the first, the original of so many things, that any complexity we might find elsewhere will almost certainly be more so in this part of the world because of its very nature. And on top of all of that, there's a good chance we don't hear much from this part of the world from these nations because they are not as wealthy and therefore not as influential in the global economy as the countries and cultures that we do tend to hear a great deal about. This trade agreement could be an important step because it could mean the end, or at least the beginning of the end, or maybe just a welcome dilution of the widespread issue of fake medicines being sold as real ones and fake food lacking all healthful substance being sold as real nutritious food in these regions. It also opens the doors to plentiful future calibration between African nations. There are already projects in place, but the more shared infrastructure exists, the more incentives there are to keep investing in that infrastructure and the benefits that they bring, whatever those benefits might end up being, the more projects and benefits we are likely to see. There are efforts being implemented to deal with some of the chronic issues this continent has faced, some of them diplomatic, some of them technological. It's estimated, for instance, that making mobile internet universally accessible continent-wide by 2030, which is a bit of a moonshot, but still possible, could increase economic growth per capita by 1.5 percentage points per year and reduce the poverty headcount, the number of people in poverty, by 0.7 percentage points per year. And this trade extension effort, if implemented effectively, and if it's not hamstrung by internal or external corruption or other negative influences, could prove fundamental to these other efforts. It could allow locals and local governments to amplify their capabilities in whichever direction they might want to aim them. On top of that, this trade agreement is important because it could help these nations achieve more credibility within the international economic system. There are a lot of reasons why this legitimacy is currently lacking, and I don't want to imply it's because there isn't skill or ideas or the potential for people or groups to kick all kinds of butt on the international scene living in these countries today. Mostly, what is lacking is funding of the proper kind and external eyes and minds seeing and then taking seriously entrance from these regions. And that's true whether we're talking about film or books or tech companies or food brands. Achieving escape velocity when you are starting out in a country or continent that lacks the infrastructural advantages of places like North America and Europe is not easy or common. Amping up the internal economic structure, however, could give these people and entities the economic foundation they require to be seen and recognized by people and entities elsewhere, which is a privilege that folks and companies from other continents already enjoy, but those from African countries typically do not, with few exceptions, today. It's hard to say where this agreement will end up and what consequences we will be able to attribute to it when we look back 10 years from now to assess how everything went. 
I do tend to think that more ideas, perspectives, voices, and opinions flowing through the international marketplace, both commercial and intellectual, is a broadly positive thing. And it seems like this new move by the African Union could help bring more local voices to the world by first making sure that they can communicate clearly and unhindered across the continent. The newsletter that I'd like to recommend today is actually very relevant to this topic, to this episode. It comes from one of my favorite publications, Quartz. That's Q-U-A-R-T-Z, Quartz. I find them to be generally very good sources, especially for topics that fall under their current list of obsessions. Other publications tend to have beats. There's the crime beat and there's the sports beat and things like that. Quartz has obsessions, and one of their obsessions is Africa. And as a consequence, they tend to have some of the better African reporting, both original and curatorial, on their website. And so if you go to qz.com slash Africa, you will find their reporting on the region, which curates a whole lot of the best reporting that is taking place in the excellent on-the-ground publications in these different countries. But you can also sign up for the Quartz Africa Weekly Brief which is one of my favorite newsletters to read every Sunday. It's essentially a summary of what they've been reporting on on the Quartz Africa website that week. And it's typically put together by somebody who is in Africa. It's a really well put together summary along with analysis and assessment of what is happening on the continent each week. So if you're looking to get a start just to see what's happening, if you're looking to dig a little bit deeper and learn a little bit more about the culture and current events of some of these countries in the African Union, this would be a great way to start. That is the Quartz Africa Weekly Brief newsletter, and you can find that and all of Quartz's reporting at qz.com Africa. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of this podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out where I will be speaking next on the speaking tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. And you can find my advice column about life at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. You can feel free to ask me a question there, too, if you have something that you are curious about. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Colin is my name. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.